Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, this week the stars of politics were Andrew Hastie and Pauline Hanson. Weirdly, Chris Kenny, Associate Editor and Columnist at The Australian, runs me through the week's political happenings. And whether our relationship with China is on a knife's edge, as it often seems to be lately. Shane Oliver, Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP Capital, takes me through how the markets have been performing, especially those in Europe and, in particular, Italy. Alan Oster, Group Chief Economist for NAB, tells me how he's changed his mind about when the RBA is likely to hike interest rates next and why he's changed his mind. And Naomi Simpson, founder of Red Balloon and one of the sharks on Network 10's Shark Tank, runs me through the experience economy and what that might mean for investors. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. And now to talk about politics for the week, here's Chris Kenny, Associate Editor and Columnist at The Australian. Chris, what do you think Andrew Hastie was up to? I mean, it was he's the Chair of the Intelligence Committee. I don't think anyone's ever come out with um, classified information before in public who was on that committee. What do you think was going on there? Well, I think what he obviously wants to do is get information out there that he thinks supports a case that's in the national interest, as he says. But the critical question is he's sharing information, he says, that he was given in intelligence briefings in the United States. Now, ordinarily, you would never share that in a public arena, albeit under uh, parliamentary privilege, unless you had the clearance of the Americans to do that. Now, if Hastie says that's the case, if he says it was an open briefing in America... Yeah, we'll, see, we'll soon see, but it, it, it would seem unlikely, and we're already starting to hear about blowback from the Americans. And uh, you know, if they've given a confidential intelligence briefing and then that's been re- relayed openly in the parliament in Australia, they're going to be pretty distressed. That's not, that's not the way you uh, deal with your intelligence partners. And it's not a very good career move to not give your prime minister a heads up about it as well, you would think. Well, that's the big question, yeah. I mean, if... Uh, if it was this, uh, such an important issue like this, and if the clearance was there, you might have given the uh, Prime Minister a heads up. Uh, it does tend to suggest that Andrew Hastie was wanting to make sure he could get out and do this without anybody preventing him. And as he says, uh, he believes it's in the national interest. But I think there are many, many questions yet to be asked, and we need to know a lot more about what's going on here. And just the final thing on that subject, um, you would think he can't stay on that committee anymore, can he? Well, if he's breached the security, if he's breached intelligence undertakings, yeah, it's going to be very, very difficult because uh, if he has done that, then uh, no other foreign intelligence agencies are going to be comfortable uh, briefing him, let alone our own intelligence agencies. So that's the question we need to uh, resolve, whether or not uh, he was authorised to release that information by the people who gave it to him. On another matter, Chris, um, you're on the uh, right of uh, politics, if I can put it that way. Do you think that, uh, do you agree with Tony Abbott that the government should compulsorily acquire Liddell Power Station? No, I don't think they should. I think it's a very interesting question, though, because we get everybody saying this is an outrageous idea of government intervention in the electricity market. But of course, the electricity market. is replete with government interventions. And that's what's creating problems at the moment. The renewable energy target is such a massive government intervention that it's completely upended the market and helped to generate the sort of problems we've got now with Liddell closing down and taking some dispatchable power out of the system. So you can understand, I suppose, why 
people are looking at doing everything they can to try and keep that power in the system, to try and keep downward pressure on prices. But I don't think it's a good idea for governments who have spent really most of the past 20 years trying to get out of the public utilities to privatise them to step in and start owning them again. It's hard to imagine Tony Abbott actually thinks that himself. Um, do, what, what sort of politics do you think he's up to? No, the usual, well, is, it, no... is it just the usual trying to cause trouble for Malcolm Turnbull? Well, there's always an element of that, of course. He's also always looking to develop a policy arguments that he thinks uh, Malcolm Turnbull isn't uh, making the most of. So you've always got to have those political or personal agendas in mind. But I think if you look at Tony Abbott's history as a politician, he's not really a sort of a free market laissez-faire individual. He's often compromised those sort of principles with policies such as his paid parental leave scheme that was going to be funded by an additional levy on business. Uh, he's also backed in the Gonski education uh, funding and the NDIS uh, when he was in opposition uh, as big government interventions. Uh, so uh, Tony Abbott's no sort of purist when it comes to market economics. And speaking about people who aren't purists, Pauline Hanson this week has um, uh, said that the uh, government, the company tax cuts won't pass. So that's it for that then, isn't it? Well, you know, it could be. It could be. I think it's a really big blow to the government if she does pull the rug out on this because uh, while these company tax cuts are a long way off and uh, they don't amount to a hell of a lot when it comes to economic reform, to me, coupled with the in personal income tax, they give the government something of an economic plan. You know, when Malcolm Turnbull came to the prime ministership, he said the government needed to have a better economic narrative. I think with these two tax plans, he's got a bit of a narrative that's built around obviously reducing tax, but using those tax cuts to generate economic growth. That's, that's his whole story. Now, if Pauline Hanson pulls the rug out from his company tax cut plan, he doesn't have much of an economic narrative left. It's a real blow. But the one thing I would say here is that Pauline Hanson can seldom continue a train of thought from the start of one sentence to the end of it. So you don't sort of put down your, gla your glasses now that she said this. She, she could be playing games to maximise her leverage, to perhaps get a little bit more support in the lead up to the Longman by-election. And, you know, perhaps uh, in, you know, in a month or two's time, we're talking about a deal she struck. I, I don't know. But at this stage, her language seems pretty definite, doesn't it? It does, but I like that. Uh, I like that picture of not being able to hold a thought from one end of a sentence to the other. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. Sometimes you you wonder, you know, you just wonder where it's all going with someone like Pauline Hanson. Uh, oh dear, oh dear. And these are the people who are holding the levers, the the economic levers of the country, effectively, because they control uh, the fate of any major economic uh, reform that a government puts up. Joined now by Shane Oliver, Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP Capital, to talk to us about the markets. Shane, I noticed you do a, did a piece on Italy this week. Has that had much of an impact on the markets generally, do you think? I think it's it's had an impact, but it's mainly globally. It's this story again about whether a country in Europe a few years ago it was Greece. Uh, prior to that, was worries about Spain and other ones. That some country in Europe will will ultimately exit the euro, causing a breakup of the of the eurozone and financial crisis across Europe. So, of course, now the focus is on Italy with a uh, a coalition or a populist coalition government uh, looking like it's going to be formed and take over. 
uh, following the elections earlier this year, and they're threatening to cut taxes, uh, increase spending, uh, all of which will violate the Europeans' rules on budget deficits and debt. Um, and uh, there's also a feeling or a concern that these uh, the, the five-star movement in the Northern League ultimately want to exit the euro. And that, of course, is put downwards pressure on the value of the euro um, and upwards pressure in the, on the value of the US dollar. So that's, that's all weight on European shares, not a huge impact on Australia. I think if the situation regarding Italy continued to deteriorate, then we would see an impact just as we did a few years ago when Grexit, uh, a Greek exit was the big issue from the euro. But so far, it's, it's mainly really a global issue, just, just impacting uh, European shares and the, and the euro exchange rate. Just a bit of volatility, but it's not. I think you concluded that it's not going to go anywhere, didn't you? I think ultimately it's not going to happen. Uh, I think what is already happening here is that Italian bond yields are seeing a lot of upwards pressure. The so-called spread between Italy and Germany is blowing out again. That's going to make it very hard for Italy under the new government to implement its program. Uh, The bond vigilantes seem to be out there in force again, um, and ultimately that will head off any move or any consideration of leaving the euro because at the end of the day it's going to be very hard for them to leave the euro they have to re-denominate to another currency uh there'd be capital flight from the country italians want to get their money out of their banks where it's all denominated in euros and either put the money uh under the bed in euros because they know that the value of the euro will go up relative to whatever currency the italians settle on so exiting the euro i think is going to be too hard, I think, for the Italian government to consider. So I think ultimately this won't go anywhere, but it could cause a bit of volatility in the process. Is there anything in Australia in the, in the market here? I mean, we, I think we've we got some more uh, economic numbers and there was a bit of a speech from the um, Reserve Bank Governor last night, um, but, but he was talking about China, wasn't he? I mean, so is, uh, have we got anything going on in Australia that's worth paying attention to? Well, we do have some things going on, I, I guess. So obviously, there was some good news for Australia earlier in the week to the extent that a trade war between the US and China might be averted. But obviously, the trade issue is still bubbling along with various comments from Donald Trump. So that remains a concern to Australia, um, even though we're on the periphery of that. Um, the Reserve Bank governor has, again, reiterated concerns about high levels of Chinese debt. Um, I'm always a little bit wary about this one because the Chinese debt issue has been around for years and it is a bit different to many other countries. China borrows from itself, so it's not dependent on pesky foreigners. Uh, And a lot of the debt they've taken on is in the corporate sector and to some degree reflects uh, fiscal policy or government stimulus initiatives. So if there was a problem there, the government could ultimately bail them out. Uh, the other issue is, I think, in China is it's also very different to many other countries. It has a debt problem because it saves too much. It saves about 46% of their national GDP or their national income. We only save about 20-odd percent of ours. Um, that saving is then largely put into their banking system. And of course, the banks lend it out and, get, and it gets called debt. So the solution to their excessive debt levels is to to save less and spend more, which is is uh, very different to, to to other countries that get into debt problems. So I think there are issues there with Chinese debt, and it remains a concern, right, for the Reserve Bank to look at it. But but I don't see it causing a crash anytime soon. In the meantime, we did see some economic he, I mean, data in saying, Australia. I wonder what what's he doing then? I mean, is he just trying to scare everybody? He shouldn't be talking about it in that case. I kind of wonder whether they are. Um, 
you know, scaring people a little bit on that front. Normally, the, 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 the Reserve Bank seems to try and talk things up. Um, they certainly do in terms of the local economy. They're usually pushing the glass half full view and they, they want to be seen as a source of stability and confidence. Um, but yeah, on China, I, I sort of do wonder why they keep raising this issue. It's certainly an issue to keep an eye on, but I think the risk of a blow up in China is very low, particularly given that their real issue is they just save too much and it all gets recycled through their banking system. And when you put any money through your banking system, it always gets called debt. Uh, the, the, the solution to Chinese problem is not to cut their spending and crash the economy. The solution is actually to consume more, to stop saving so much, and also to recycle some of that saving through equity rather than through debt. So I, I do think that the Reserve Bank is probably overblowing that issue a little bit. And it looks like the uh, trade war fears, uh, I mean, look, as you say, they're bubbling along, but it's... Um you know, it's really just a sort of a, a rather uh, tense negotiation, isn't it? I think that's what it is. And I think Donald Trump, uh, well, it seems whoever Donald Trump meets, if they're nice to him, he then tries to be nice to them back. He had a phone call with Chinese President Xi Jinping, and so he comes out all nice and says, well, we're going to remove the restrictions we put on that Chinese company called ZTE. Uh, and then a little bit later, he talks to his American people, and they say, you've got to be tough here, and then he, he expresses doubts as to whether the trade stuff will, will work. So he does blow around a little bit. Um, he's also known for creating a bit of a storm around negotiations to, to try and get what he wants. So you've got to put his, com- his comments Uh, you've got to turn down the noise on some of his comments to some degree. But I think at the end of the day, he and the Chinese do want a negotiated solution. Likewise, he wants a negotiated solution regarding NAFTA. Um, That's why he's now doing a review of uh, uh, imports of auto, of cars into the US, cars and trucks, um, because he knows a big chunk of those cars and trucks come from Mexico and Canada. Um, So a lot of it's about um, posturing going into and around negotiations. So the noise will continue there, the volatility will continue there, but I think at the end of the day, we're not going to have a, uh, a China-US or let alone a global trade war, but obviously it won't stop markets worrying about it from time to time. Joining me now is Alan Oster, the chief economist at NAB. Alan, uh, you've you've changed your uh, thinking about when the interest rates in Australia will go up. Uh, how much by? When? I mean, I think you're saying now middle of next year. But it, what what was, what was it before? Um, previously, we'd had, we'd thought that the economy would be in a state that you would probably see a rate rise at the end of this year. Um, and whilst we still think the next move is up. Um, essentially, we've delayed the whole rates um, hiking uh, phase until the middle of next year because of two things. Uh, number one, wages are doing nothing. And until they start to pick up somewhat, um, essentially, the consumer is going to stay quite concerned and uh, conservative. And everything in our internal data says that whilst it might have been okay early in this year, things have sort of petered away again now. The, the other thing that was uh, important was that the labour market or the unemployment rate, if you like, is staying around 5.5%. Uh, and whilst you know lots of in- jobs are being created, participation rate um, has 
gone to record highs and so maybe it's um, encouraged worker effects in other words more jobs around people more implied, inclined to, to apply um, so if unemployment stays at around five and a half percent you know again you're not going to get a lot of pressure coming back into the labor market so you know we're not changing our view that the economy is doing better, but we do think unemployment is going to take longer to come down, and therefore wages are going to take longer to start to pick up. Um, and so in that sort of environment, I think the Reserve Bank's going to be sitting around and doing nothing for a really long time. But what do you think is happening to growth? I mean, because um, of, some of the signs are starting to point to a softening of the economy generally, leaving aside unemployment and wages. Well, I think there's some special factors that are going to basically help a little bit. Number one, the government's doing a lot of infrastructure, so uh, particularly New South Wales and Victoria, um, and that's not just in the budget. That's been happening for ages. Um, number two, we're seeing a little bit of a pickup in uh, business investment, although uh, not via the, via the banks, rather than if they've got any spare cash flow, they're starting to pick it up a bit. So non-mining investment is up about 10% over the last 12 months, and we think that might continue. Um, and there's a technical one, and that is we've been building a lot of LNG platforms, and now they're starting to export. So that's not going to show up in terms of the domestic part of the economy, but it will show up in GDP. Um, so we're, we, we sort of think two and three quarters, so we're more conservative than the government, which is around three, and the Reserve Bank's like three and a quarter, so we're more conservative than all, basically because we think the consumer is going to be not doing much better than growth rates of two and a half percent, which is where they are at present. Consumption is going to be quite strong in this quarter because people were buying services, but what we've sort of seen was very strong January, February, and then it's been tailing away, and on our internal data, April was a bit of a shocker, so you're going to get a pretty weak uh, consumption reading in, in the June quarter. There's a lot of talk lately about the experience economy, so I thought it was worth touching base with Naomi Simpson, the founder of Red Balloon, which is the purveyor of experiences and also the star of Network 10's Shark Tank. Naomi, the, um, the National Australia Bank's economists have put out a, a special report on the experience economy, so um, if the economists are, uh, are uh, tweaking onto it, it must be true. Um, but you've been on about this for quite a long time. Yes, almost two decades, in fact. But um, there's no there's no doubt there is such a thing called the experience economy. In fact, we're seeing a whole trend with the younger generation who think that they will never have the lifestyle that their parents have. So they have this notion of YOLO, hashtag YOLO, which means you only live once. And um, so therefore, there's a propensity for people to spend more on experiences, activities, doing things that they want to do with their friends rather than necessarily accumulating wealth or looking at creating assets. So it is a it is a whole thing. That's right. But as you say, you've been doing this for quite a while, um, but are you noticing um, a sort of an acceleration of this in recent years? 
Um, look, we, there's no doubt our business for Balloon is still getting year-on-year growth, which is which is fantastic. But I think what's happened is also that we just have broader reach than we had before. In other words, it's becoming more pervasive and obvious. Way back in 2001 when I launched the website, it was, we were absolutely creating or developing a market for activities and experiences. Whereas now it's almost a obvious thing for somebody to either think or to do. They're going, well, what can we do at home? And even through that whole GS, GS, uh, GFC timeframe, we were getting material growth, and I'm talking over 50% year-on-year growth. And the reason being is we would consider ourselves part of the lipstick economy. That is, if you can't afford a holiday or a trip away, why don't we just spoil ourselves at home and be a tourist or a, I think there's the whole, they call it staycations now where you stay at home but you do activities in your own town and there's absolutely a trend towards that. And to, to what extent do you think investors need to take notice of this and to adjust their thinking about um, you know their portfolios and how they position them? Look, you know, we've, we've, we've seen a whole trend in collaborative consumption and there's no difference when it comes to the experience economy. Um, you know, why would somebody pay for an Uber Eats rather than going and getting them themselves? It's because their time becomes more precious. So if I watch my four young adults who are in my life, they don't look at the, the, the price of a meal. They look at the total price, which includes delivery. And this is something that investors really need to consider. It's about the what is my time worth and what am I prepared to pay for that because people will pay for it. Uh, and there's really good business, business opportunities in that. If you, if you think about the broader spectrum of the experience economy, when time becomes your most precious resource rather than, um, rather than things. Yeah, because I think, um, you know, most investors are thinking about consumption as being things and stuff rather than experiences and doing things. And I guess it's a, it's a bit of a change that everyone has to, has to think about now because, uh, as you say, the young, um, your young adults, my young adults are all about things they can do rather than things they can buy. Yes. Um, there's a, also, we've got, as investors, we have to keep looking at what trends are going on. And there has been a movement towards minimalism. And that is, it's not about not having things, but the things that you do have, you really appreciate and enjoy and you share. And that's a real shift in terms of how people are viewing consumption. The other thing is that we just don't need as many things as we used to have. You know, think about all of the products or items that have gone away because we have a mobile phone and we have access to infinite, infinite information. So there is a massive kind of mind shift in terms of looking at um, what trends are going on. Also, even the green economy. It's like how far did something have to be shipped before it got to me for consumption, the notion of buying local as well. So, um, you know, we, I've often used the um, analogy, why don't, why don't we buy Australian, which is experiences and activities, uh, support Australian small businesses, which is exactly what Red Balloon does because we're an aggregator of uh, 4,000 different experiences around Australia and we're their marketing engine effectively. But it's more the fact that you also have looked after the planet in the sense of if, if a vase is, you give a vase as a gift as an example and it's manufactured in China, shipped to Australia, you know, it then 
gets put on a mantelpiece, maybe it gets put in storage and then ultimately it becomes landfill. Like the journey of that item for what level of pleasure, outcome or experience and ultimately this whole mentalness movement uh, or experience economy is about enjoying what you do have and, uh, and sharing it. So that's the notion of the share economy, the collaborative consumption, but also the experience economy. Happy birthday to the legendary Bob Dylan, who turned 77 yesterday. And there's so many songs to choose from, but let's go with Shelter from the Storm. When blackness was a virtue, the road was full of mud. I came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. That's it for Talking Finance this week. I'm Alan Kohler. Have a great week.